Hi, everyone. This is Inside Dance with Taylor and Alex. Featuring your hosts, Taylor Bradley. And Alex Yankovich. Yeah, every day, we're just out here. Hi, guys, and welcome back to Inside Dance Podcast with Taylor and Alex. We are so excited to have you for another amazing episode. Can you believe that we're already about halfway through April? That is one-third through 2021. I don't know where the time is going, but we're happy that you're spending that time with us. So later in this episode, we are joined by an incredible mentor, past professor of both Alex and mine and dear friend. His name is Sam Watson, who is currently still on faculty at the University of Arizona. So stay tuned. He has so much knowledge, history, context, and insight that you will not want to miss. Speaking of not missing things, are you following us? We'll follow you, right? We are on Instagram at Inside Dance Podcast. Also, while you're there, go ahead and follow our friends, our sponsors, our partners over at Inside Dance Magazine. They are on Instagram at Inside Dance Mag. Last but not least, we want to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, recommendations, if you want to give a shout out to your dance teacher or dance buddy, please write us at InsideDancePodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. This week, our community spotlight is the Black Art Futures Fund, founded by Delana R.A. Demarin. This fund takes huge steps into providing grants, as well as advocacy and resources to amplify the future of Black art, making sure that Black artists are given the opportunity and funding to share their important work. These recipients receive more than just a grant, but also receive access to financial support from both individual donors and small business donors who support the grant pool. Members of the Black Art Futures Fund board have been able to provide grants for artistic organizations, museums, and also dance companies. One of the best ways you can support the Black Art Futures Fund is to donate and to follow them on Instagram, subscribe to their email list, and most importantly, if you have a friend or a friend of a friend who you think may be eligible for their grants, let them know so that they can apply and receive access. All of their eligibility requirements are on their website at www.blackartfutures.org. We will have all of the proper links in the description below. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of jazz dance. Now, Alex and I are both alumni of the University of Arizona, and we were fortunate enough to take a history of dance course our freshman year. Um, And it's so, so pivotal, we believe, to understanding dance now, right? Knowing your roots and knowing Um, where you came from, right? Later in our episode, we are going to be joined by one of our professors from the University of Arizona, Sam Watson, um, who echoes this same point. Um, And just knowing how important it is to know where dance came from, right? What inspired it? And then almost like Alex always says, you have to know the rules to break the rules, right? So learning the rules, learning the background of jazz dance. So jazz dance is frequently considered Um, under the umbrella or inspired from African dance, right? Now, dance wasn't just used for entertainment purposes in African culture. It was ceremonial. It was used in their religious practices. Um, It was cultural, but at the same time, it was social, right? People would gather and it was similar to how we are today, right? Just expressing yourself through movement and dance. That's what movement played a part in their society, Now, jazz dance really found its roots and its beginnings in America in the early 20th century. New Orleans, Louisiana became a cultural hub for all of the arts. So music, dance, um, 
everything was just booming. And it was the center where people would go to inspire and to get inspired. So jazz music was the new hot style of music. And it's used a lot of the same beats from African music, from African culture. At the same time, we have all these fad dances that are suddenly becoming so popular. Things like the Charleston, the Jitterbug, the Lindy Hop, Boogie Woogie, and Swing um, were all becoming more popular. So you have this new hot rising style of music and suddenly, I don't want to say choreography, but people were learning these styles of dance to a point where it could be used as a social interaction and frequently was. So up until now, jazz dance and this culture that is jazz was very informal, right? It was people gathering and um, improving, vibing off one another. But it wasn't until about 1930 that dance, trained technical dance, and jazz kind of began to mesh together. So then following suit with Jack Cole, you had dancers like Catherine Dunham, um, who went on to inspire Alvin Ailey um, with works such as Revelations, Night Creature, which really infused the gospel blues, African-American spirituals with modern dance. Similarly, you have Michael Kidd, who was a soloist with the American Ballet Theater, um, who really brought the lens of untrained dance to trained dance, right? So what would it look like for a non-trained person to interpret dance? Kind of losing that rigidity that comes so frequently with ballet strict training, right? One of my favorites is going to be Jerome Robbins, who really bridged the gap between ballet and what jazz had been building up to. You can recognize his choreography from popular Broadway shows like On the Town, West Side Story, The King and I, Gypsy, Peter Pan, and Fiddler on the Roof. Now, I know two names that always come to mind when I think of jazz dance are Luigi and Giordano. So Luigi is, he was kind of the first father of classic jazz technique. He was the first one that really cultivated its own structure and form to what jazz is, which something I didn't know, but in doing some research, it actually came from a regime that he invented to overcome an injury that left him partially paralyzed. So it's crazy to think that this innovative series of movements that was just to rehab blossom and bloomed into basically what jazz dance is today. Similarly, you had Gus Giordano, who was another pinnacle figure for jazz. Um, in the 1960s, he was known for his freestyle, but also the, the rigid torso and head isolations that I know we've all done in jazz class, right? He's noted for creating the Jazz Dance World Congress, which was huge in spreading this idea of jazz and not only the structure of jazz, but the fun that jazz is, um, which it's still pre-pandemic. Jazz Dance World Congress is still happening to this day. And of course, we all know Giordano Dance Chicago, which is a very popular jazz dance company um, that is still very much alive and successful, uh, that embodies his movement, his style, um, and that foundation that he laid. Moving forward into the late 50s and early 60s, we have one of my favorite choreographers. I know a fan favorite of many. It's going to be Bob Fosse, who um, was groundbreaking with his choreography for Steam Heat, uh, Pajama Game. Uh, he went on to choreograph Damn Yankees, Sweet Charity, Pippin, Cabaret, Chicago, so many iconic 
dance pieces and musicals that, again, brought this idea of jazz dance to a large stage, a large venue that could be appreciated by so many people, no matter what their background, what their training was. Of course, jazz is still very much alive today on the Broadway scene. Um, what comes to mind for me is Hamilton, right? Which is such a beautiful example of a current and evolved concept of jazz, right? It's hip hop, it's contemporary, it's jazz, but it's all got its foundation, its roots in classic jazz training. So when you kind of zoom out of what jazz is, it gives you such an appreciation of knowing that it started from something that was so raw and vulnerable and untrained, but then it was kind of this bridge and hybrid of trained dancers emulating, of lifting up this free-spirited form of movement to then making it more mainstream and making it more codified. So the history of jazz dance, definitely not a linear journey, but an incredibly entertaining one. <laughs> for lack of better words, with lots of twists and turns, all the puns today, right? But very important to know your background, to know where you came from in order to appreciate where you are now and where you're going. I know for me, I can relate. Jazz was the first form of dance that I was drawn to because A, it just looks cool and fun, right? It looks entertaining, but it also, it's less daunting. I feel like um, as a young kid, it's crazy that to think that you're thrown into a ballet class. And first of all, you don't realize what any of the words mean. You're just like, yep, I'm going to do this. And that's called a shanjma. And then it's kind of like monkey see monkey do. Um, but it can be very off putting. I know I was always nervous to hop in a ballet class at a young age, whereas jazz was fun. It was loose. It was free. And it was just kind of, it was still, you're following along, but it was being less self-conscious of the structure of it and just being like, oh, okay, cool. Let's enjoy this. Let's let go. Let's, ah, let's enjoy dance, right? What I also find very interesting about jazz is what the word contemporary has come to mean in the current dance world. Contemporary meaning literally just like now, current, in this moment. Um, I feel like it's gotten this own identity over the past few years that combines modern jazz, lyrical ballet, all within this same category, which is so beautiful again, right? Because you look at jazz um, and how it came from just so many different aspects of the dance community. And then now we have contemporary, which is doing that even more so. So in summary, I will say my thoughts on this are movement is movement, but I have such an appreciation of that movement, knowing from where it stems from. I always say you can't fake technique. You know, when you see a trained dancer versus a not trained dancer, it's so beautiful. It's so distinguishable. But at the same time, if you're stuck in that training, you're putting yourself in a box. So know that training, know your background, know your history, and then push the mold, right? Push the boundaries and maybe see where that takes you, whether that's coming up with your own personal style or who knows, you could be the next Jack Cole. You could be the next innovator of the big style movement. So. Okay, Taylor, work with the history lesson. That was seriously incredible. Thank you so much for diving into all of that. And honestly, I couldn't agree with you more. It's extremely important, especially these days to be recognizing and understanding the roots and the history of the styles that we are learning and the styles that we love. And as educators, you know, the styles that we go on to teach um, to the younger generation. So it's so important to be understanding of that history. I uh, also wanted to mention that 
I got to participate uh, in Jazz World Congress along with many other dancers at U of A. Jared Baker's piece was selected for a choreography competition. I could be wrong about which competition it was, but he ended up winning it. And we had a really great time. It was uh, Jazz World Congress takes place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So hopefully post-COVID, people are able to participate in that, which is really amazing. But I think it's time that we head into our incredible interview with Sam. So let's hear all that our special guest has to say. All right, guys, we are so excited to welcome this week's very special guest. This person is a huge inspiration and mentor to both Alex and I. So please join me in welcoming the incredible Sam Watson. Woohoo! How's it you. going, Sam? I'm good. Good. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, it's just great to see everybody. We're so excited to dive into everything because you've had... Um, I mean, for, for our listeners, uh, for those of us like just joining us, uh, if you don't know, Taylor and I both were in the same graduating class at University of Arizona, and Sam was one of our wonderful professors, and it was just a joy and a privilege to be able to work with you. So we're excited to to talk all this through. Absolutely. So Sam, um, just to start us off, do you mind just um, explaining where you're from and kind of how you got into dancing? Well, I am from a small town in Western Kentucky. I basically grew up uh, around cornfields and coal mines. Uh, so there, I'm the only one in my family that really is in the arts. Uh, I actually have some of my nieces and nephews that kind of followed in my footsteps and started taking classes. But at that time, there really is, wasn't anybody in my family that, that had that, that kind of drive or, or inspiration. And actually, I didn't really even think about dancing at all. My sister took some dance classes. We we're two and a half years apart. So uh, she took them uh, when she started, you know, like maybe 10 years old. And um, it just wasn't an option for boys at that time to take dance classes. So I never really even thought about it. But my sister used to come home after she would take dance class and she would show me her steps. And I always picked them up. So I learned my, I learned my first pot of array from my sister. And she didn't even know what that it was a French term because it was a small dance studio. And she didn't know that it was pas de bourree. She just said, would say, she goes, look, this is a pas de bourree. And then she'd show it to me backside front. And I'm like, what? She goes, it's just like this, pas de bourree. So I would, so I didn't know what that was, but I learned the step and I learned kickball change and I learned pivot from her. Uh, and then, you know, it was years later, we used to laugh about it because she quit dance. She wasn't, you know, she, she, she twirled baton and was a cheerleader, but she, the steps and especially ballet, she didn't want to have anything to do with it. And we used to, I used to tease her back and forth. Cause I was like, you know, you knew I was better than you the whole time. You used to teach me the steps and I learned them more better than you and faster than you. So that was my humble beginnings. Like actually my first dance step, but in, in high school, oddly enough, in this school that literally was surrounded by cornfields and coal mines. They had an incredible speech and drama teacher there, Judy Woodring. And from my graduating class, there were three professional male dancers that came out of that class, 
Also, uh, many other uh, people were professional actors, uh, became, went on through a whole career of acting and, and singing, uh, but it was all due to her, her um, inspiration for giving us something about how we were important in inspiring others through the performing arts. And so I started, I joined the um, speech and drama team. And from there, we went into a one-act play contest. We she selected different people from that we would do. You know, we always did um, little plays and and musicals for the high school. But uh, we we uh, were put into a group and we created our first our own original one-act play. It had singing and dancing in it. And at that time, this is in 1977. So. Saturday Saturday Night Fever had just come out. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I would. We were all just. We, that's what we were going to do. We were going to be disco dancers. So our our drama club had a disco team, and so we were already. You know, so that was it. I had the whole thing. My very first recital I ever did is I did a disco number to, uh, uh, you know, what's staying the, alive. No, disco inferno. Oh, ooh, yeah. that's a good one. Okay. Another great one. <laughs> but anyway, so we made this one act play and we created it all ourselves. We came up with all of the uh, the script and there were songs in it. One was uh, one was uh, a um, Ave Maria. And we had to be this very, you know, we had to make this this uh, vision of a crucifix it, with you know how you can stand and you have your arms and one person has their arms here and you make that kaleidoscope and i remember i just felt like oh my gosh we are making such the the you know that this really the essence of life we are <laughs> artists and the art- and in in the performance, that was like a big thing. We had a light on us, and we were all this whole group. That that was how it ended. It was uh, us with this our jazz jazz hands spread out amongst this like kind of crucifix type thing. And I think that's when we got we won. We won the national competition for high school one act plays, and we were allowed to go for a week with one of the community college. Um, theater departments to go to New York City for a week and go to Broadway shows and go all to these tours and all of these things. And so here's like, you know, this again, Kentucky boy, just you know, kind of learning some pot of berets and kickball changes from my sister. Then we're in this, you know, speech and drama team. So I started learning about performing and we're in New York and we go see a chorus line. So this is in, uh, now it's in 1978. This is my senior year. And a chorus line, I think, went on on Broadway 1974. So there were still some of the original members in the cast. And I remember sitting back and with a, God, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. And I'm like, oh my God, look, they're, they're people, you know, they're, these are real people. And then you start hearing all their stories and everything. And and then just the the just the I mean coming from Kentucky at that time and when the girl starts singing about tits and ass, you know that whole part, I was like, this is incredible, you know, all of these things that you thought were so taboo, and here it is on Broadway, and at the very end of that, I was like, ah, I want to be a dancer, 
And so I still thought it was going to be disco. But after that experience of going on Broadway, seeing these dancers, talking to them and all of this, I decided that I would go to college. I didn't know for sure what I was going to do, but I was going to take dance because my best friend in high school was Stephen Mills. And I don't know if you know who Stephen Mills now, but he's the director of Austin Ballet. He's quite well known. Well, we were best friends in high school and he was on our speech and drama team. And so we decided to go to Northern Kentucky University, which is uh, across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. So it was about four hours from where we were from. And um, he was, you know, taking theater and dance. And I remember uh, I decided I was going to take a dance class uh, and I took modern and I thought modern was disco. I thought, you know, I was like, oh, it's modern dance. It's what's today. I'm going to take like, this. Yeah, like modern, like with the times. It's so yeah, hip. It's, it's so modern. modern. <laughs> That's what modern is. And and uh, and Stephen didn't really know so much about modern. He was taking ballet and jazz. We both and we had taken a, a, a little like a private class in a local studio studio that that uh, spring before we went into college. Uh, but we really didn't know anything about modern. And, but we had a friend that was also a year, couple of years older than us that was at Butler University. And she was a ballet dancer, but they took modern there. And so we asked her, like, well, what's, what is modern? She goes, well, you know, it's kind of like ballet, but you, you dance bare feet and your feet are flexed a lot and you breathe and you roll around on the floor. Honestly, there needs to be like a, like, explanation to non-dancers for dummies because like trying to explain to somebody what like lyrical is if they have no conception of dance you're like uh it's kind of slow and it's pretty and they still don't get it and then they're like so you're singing lyrics right and you're like oh gosh here we go so i completely understand the uh (laughs) the confusion and trying to navigate that as someone that's not a dancer right yeah but i I mean, I looked at her, I was like, well, I just looked to myself. I was like, well, I can dance bare feet. I can flex my feet. I can breathe. I didn't know what she meant by that. And I can roll on the floor. So I said, oh, let's go for it. Well, then I go there and it's Graham technique. Oh my gosh. So you're, I mean, that's a total culture shock. Oh, and here we are sitting down doing 16 pulses. And, you know, you had to have really open hip sockets. I could not even sit up on my sit bones, you know, I'm like all back here. and. It was just sheer pain for me for 45 minutes, you know, doing all the gram floor work and standing up. And I just didn't know, you know, what this was all about. And from that day forward, you know, right after me, I, I, I was I wanted to try it. But I was like, this is modern dance. I don't think I, I'm cut out for this. But I really liked the jazz and I liked the ballet, too. And because we were doing stage movement jazz. And then I got, uh, there was another local dance studio called, uh, he was, his name was Bobby Ziegler. Uh, he was part of the whole dance uh, convention circuit. The very first one before all the big circuits, which was. Wow. I did not know that. Danny Hochter's dance Car- caravan, which was the very first big convention. You had dance edu- educators of America and dance masters of America, but Danny Hochter had this tour of teachers that went around and you took classes. One of those teachers was Gus Giordano. And one of the other ones was a very young man from Las Vegas who was in show Las Vegas named Joe Tremaine. Bobby Ziggler, also the tap teacher. 
in that. And so his studio was in right out of Covington, Kentucky. So I started taking classes there in jazz and I really fell in love with it. I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. He goes, look, if you want jazz, you should go to Chicago. I'll talk to my friend, Gus Giordano. He goes, you have a choice. You can either go to New York and you could study from Luigi or Frank Hatchett, or you could go to Chicago. I know him. I'll talk to him about it. And maybe you should to go there. So I left, I only went for one year Northern Kentucky University. And then I applied to go on scholarship. At that time you had to go to Giordano Dance Center in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, be there for a few weeks to be assessed if you could be on, on scholarship. And that's what I did. I sold everything. I sold my car. I came home. I told my mom, I'm moving to Chicago. She says, what are you going to do there? I said, I have no idea, but I'm going to go there and study for, with this person named Gus Giordano. And that's what I'm going to do. I got on scholarship along with another person that you would know, Alex, who had been there the year before me, which was Michael Williams. He was the year before me and he was on scholarship. And so that's how it started. That's how it that- went from... I worked up through the ranks. Wow. From- That's amazing. And I feel like being a male dancer, it brings its own challenges, you know, as it is, but also you bring up so many good points, but I love that you had such a, t- a great teacher that inspired you, Judy. So you like, even though you're coming from a small town, you have that motivation and that person who brings all of that opportunity to a mm-hmm. small town. And that's so important. And then you also bring up a good point of having kind of this trust and this freedom like not being so like rigid and like, okay, I need to do this. It's like, okay, I need to meet these people and be open and be um, open to these opportunities because then, you know, you make those connections and then you're getting to meet Gus Giordano and it, it, it blossoms into everything else. So it's so inspiring talking to you. And I know like reconnecting with everybody, uh, Taylor and I doing this podcast, like it's been so nice talking about everybody's humble beginnings and how they've kind of, moved on and it makes us so happy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I want, you are such a creative person. So can you talk a little bit about how you started choreographing, how you were able to like set those pieces and that whole part of your career? Cause that's super interesting and that's really difficult to do. And just to kind of to set the stage for our listeners, Sam is such, the word that comes to mind is quirky, just a quirky uniqueness to so much of his works. Everything from being dancing punctuation marks to putting all six foot two, 200 pound of me in a baby doll dress and having me dance around the stage as a, a fairy tale character, right? So, um, but Sam, just kind of echoing what Alex said, he's absolutely a perfect example of not putting yourself in one box but all of his works are so so one of a kind and so just tongue-in-cheek quirky I shouldn't say all of them Sam I don't mean to totally be labeling you but um that's just what comes to mind when I think of all the good times that we had um rehearsing and working together in Tucson so um back to Alex's question though where does that that inspiration where does that stem from where does that root from kind of what's your process I should say well, it's a good good that you said that, Taylor, because that gives me a point of departure of where I'm going to start. Because I was I was going to say, Alex, what you mean at the very beginning, like the very first thing I decided to choreograph, but really it was you know after I got to Giordano's and we had like basically kind of what we did at at, at the U of A, you know, where we had student works that could be done and they'd be presented. It was part of the scholarship program, you know. That and so when I 
by the time I started teaching like the beginning level uh, jazz class, uh, that's when I had to start choreographing for these student showcases, whatever the people in the class, I had to choreograph these little numbers. And I did start to do things that I felt like I, everybody else was doing, you know, something that was really heartfelt, you know, and it's that age, you know, when you're at that age, you kind of want to express yourself really deep and, and things. But there was, I, I started that, but I always go back to this stuff that, I kind of did naturally. And I think it really came from my father. My father was, he lived out of the box too. He wasn't in the arts, but he was a professional archer. He uh, bows and arrows and archery equipment. Uh, Basically, again, just, he just fell into it. He was a woodworker um, and he liked hunting and fishing. And anyway, he he had a he had just this mind that was very inventive. Most many of the original archery products you see today, and it's funny that archery now has become very popular. My great nephew is back into it again. But most of the original patents for some of the original, you know, like the what we call um, uh, weight pull bow, bows with bows and arrows, which is not the compound type bows that you see now. It's basically hand carved bows and arrows. He came up with the patents for all of those. So he had a really creative mind. And then he segued into crazy ideas because he loved toys and he started invented, inventing toys. Uh, so he had many, many patents on toys. And so I grew up with a father that that kind of always ne- was not the normal father. I mean, I, I, I guess when I was a kid, I I always wanted. It was to normal to you as a kid, right? Because you don't know. But then, yeah, <laughs> as an adult, you're like, "What I, do you mean? Everyone's parents didn't make patents for archery." <laughs> I mean, but also he made these toys. So like he he was crazy for suction cups, for instance, suction cups. Oh my and, god! <laughs> that's the, the name 60- of your next piece. I'm telling you. Crazy for suction cups. This piece about my father will eventually come out. And it's going to be uh, my father, the archer. I mean, I could talk a whole different thing about my my relationship with my father. But yeah, he, in the 60s, suction cups started showing up uh, in toys and he loved them. So he bought like in bulk thousands and thousands of different sizes and colors of suction cups and started inventing with them. And he actually made one that actually it was... Whammo, you know, Whammo products, the, you know, the, the uh-huh. yeah, and all that. Well, he was really good at making the patents and, and kind of coming up with the inventive part, but he didn't really, he didn't have really the mindset of taking it further and, and, and getting it produced, mass produced. He had some things, but this one he did. And so it's a, 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 a um, I'm not, I'm going to lead up to how this head comes into the choreography, but it was, it's the thing that you play. You see it now it's made out of Velcro. It's like a plate with a handle on the back of it and it has a Velcro ball. Yeah. And, and you like learn how to play ping pong. Well, you, yeah. it's, you take like this and you push it and then the other person has to catch it on their plate. Yes. You know? Well, he made the original one and it was with suction cups. And then wow. later on, legendary that, that patent was sold to Whammo and they, they changed it to uh, the Velcro pro ball and the Velcro, Velcro pad. And to this day, they make that. But that was my father's original 
idea. So I had this idea that when I was a kid, that you could just do whatever. You could just make up stuff, whatever. I mean, it's just what it was. I didn't really realize it at that time, but I started finding my creative outlet in dance. Uh, I wasn't a good student because I was, I'm highly dyslexic. I am, I am type A dyslexic, textbook dyslexic. And you guys probably remember me when we would be choreographing and trying to figure out something. And all of a sudden I would stop and stand and look at it upside down. I was just about to say, I have a picture in my mind of you looking at her saying, uh, what was it? Paper or plastic? And just you upside down, you're watching the cast. And I always loved that. That picture, that image of you will always like live in my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just one of the things that I think dyslexics and you've, if you've ever read, there's a book called My Dyslexia and it talks about how dyslexics, how they look at things it's, you know, we don't know how anybody else looks, but obviously I see things in a different way. And sometimes when I want to be really clear, if I'm creating, I have to look at it from a different perspective. If I turn it upside down, if I look at it upside down, everything comes very clear to me about what I want to have happen because just my perspective, it just, I don't know why it just, it helps me. My art teacher taught me how to do that because I was a, uh, was a assistant to her in painting the painting class. And I would always have problems with contrast. And she said, just turn the painting upside down. And so all of those things came together. So when I started choreographing, I had these ones where I thought I had to look like everybody else, but it always revert back to this kind of unique way that I just kind of learned how to create and it was very quirky and it had this kind of odd feeling and I really, and it came very easy to me, very easy to me. So I felt like it was like, no one wants to see this because I'm just acting like a fool on stage. Why would anybody want that? And then that's what stuck. Everybody, anything. Stuck like Velcro, should I say? Yes, exactly. <laughs> stuck like a whammo product. But I didn't really recognize it. And then, when I started going further forward into choreography and it was with Gus Giordano when he, the first time he had me choreograph something on the company. Now, this is after I had already left the company. I was already dancing in a, a Chicago repertory dance ensemble at that time, which was a, a contemporary based company in Chicago. Um, but he asked me to do some choreography and I was kept pitching him some ideas. And he goes, you know, you need to stop thinking about trying to fit what everybody else is doing and just do that stuff that you do that everyone seems to gravitate toward. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and that's what you're good at. And you should accept it, that, that this kind of quirky, weird personality that comes out in your choreography is your trademark. And if you just uh, use that as your niche, you know, that's your, your selling point. He says, I think you're going to be really, really successful at it. He goes, I had, I did it uh, in a different way. You know, he had his tech, this brand new technique that he was creating to create jazz as a concert dance form. And it was because of that, we have jazz in, in, in academia, you know, and he goes, that was my niche. He goes, but I think yours is about creating these things that are inside your head and you don't, think twice about how anyone about it. it just comes out. Honestly, that has to be like one of the main um, themes we keep hearing over and over again from so many guests. Uh, we had Bonnie Story on last week. Uh, Sarah Davidson, the former head of casting for Cirque. Um, our friend, our mutual friend, you know, Miguel Perez. Um, and 
so many sure. of our guests have that that same idea of just authenticity in who you are, whether as a performer, as a choreographer, as a dancer, as a human, right? It's just uh, being authentically who you are. And that's ultimately what everybody has said has kind of led to their success. And it sounds like it's the same story for you. So if you're out there and you're listening, be yourself, guys, whether as a choreographer, a dancer, um, whatever it may be, just find that that truth that you are and bring it forward onto the stage, right? Yes, exactly. Alex, what were you going to say? Alex? I was, <laughs> thank you. Um, I was going to say that I really struggle with that, but I've noticed I've been dancing, I've been um, uh, judging so many dance competitions on the weekends lately. And I'm telling you, I'm falling asleep at the slow, sad, and sometimes the slow and sad is great. But when it's like 14 hours go by, the jazz pieces happen and I sit up a little straighter and this energy goes through me or I'll see some numbers where they really go outside the box with the choreography and they don't do all the same moves. And it's finally like, oh my gosh, yes, this is exciting. And I was going to say that when people go to see a dance company or a show, a lot of times it's for a form of escapism. And so a lot of times people's at-home lives are already down or they might be negative and they're already always in their feelings. And it's really nice to go see a professional um, show something in a different way and like humor you in how, in so many different ways. And you're, you're like the epitome of that choreographer who obviously, you know, hearing your story, you can see it. And we'll, we'll definitely, um, we'll get your approval on some pieces, but we'll definitely post some of your yeah. stuff, especially hijinks and punctuations, which are some of my favorites. Man. So everyone can see. Sam, I have a question or a, a topic I want to bring up with you. Um, as a good percentage of our listeners are younger dancers, um, whether they're transitioning from high school to college or um, kind of into pre-professional companies. Um, I know you're no stranger to that, right? As having been on faculty at the University of the <laughs> tripping over my words, as having been on faculty at the University of Arizona um, for so many years, um, I want to know what is like one trend or one theme that you see happening? It could be good. It could be bad. Maybe one of each um, in young dancers um, and kind of what's, what are you noticing generally? generationally um now that's different from the last 10 years maybe that's yeah no, i definitely you know in the last especially in the last just in the last 10 years just the escalation of the digital world you know it it started in you know right at the at, at the beginning of, of the year 2000 you know that's really when it kicked into gear when you finally started seeing the internet coming about and and we all, I mean, if you think about it, I remember in 2001, I got my first like flip phone where you could actually take a photograph on it. And, that, and from that, I mean, it's been 20 years, but I mean, look where we are now. So, I mean, just that, that immediate uh, gratification of, of, of getting information, I think is an amazing thing for our, the young dancers right now, because of that, they have so much more information at their fingertips that they can absorb so quickly. And that's what we see. I mean, the technical level of the dancers are just so way beyond what it was 20 years ago, just because they have so much access to 
uh, different people and, and ways of, of moving and also, you know, learning from their peers, learning from all these other people. And of course, the conventions and all of these different things, you know, it's just it's just compounded. It's it's like exponential growth when it comes to technical skill and that I, and the ability to pick up choreography quickly. That part, I think, is all the things that I, I find that are are good things about about uh, the young dancers now. But some of the things that I see that is starting to slip away, especially in just the last few years, is this sense of loss of detail and precision in the value of keeping the history of what jazz dance is. Because without jazz dance, you cannot forget where its roots from. It's the only American dance form we have. Everything else came from somewhere else, but jazz dance started in America. It started from the roots of African dance. It started in the street performers. It's, I mean, you, you read the anthology of American jazz dance and you know, it's what I, and you guys know from dance history when I would lecture, this is what it's all about. And you have to, to keep your finger on the pulse of jazz dance. You also have to know where it came from to see how re history repeats itself, how the lineage of these people that are now, where did they come from and how did they get there? I'm from a lineage of Giordano, but Giordano came from a lineage of all the modern uh, Hanya home and, and, you know, all of these people, uh, Agnes DeMille and all these people that she, he worked with on Broadway. And I see that that is something where it's always about what's happening now with the current Trent people, uh, uh, the, 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 kids of the day. And I think if they come from studios that have teachers that keep saying, no, don't forget about where we came from and remember all of that, because you're going to have to use that. If you're going to be a, a professional dancer in, in jazz, you better know what happened in the twenties and the thirties and the forties and the fifties. And you better know all the names like Jack Cole, and you better know all these people that came before the ones that are right now. And I think that's part and of course, our students get a taste of that because we, I mean, even in my jazz class today, I'm, I'm using music that's, you know, I've been using for their midterms. I didn't use anything, you know, I use all kinds of combinations, but I'm using something. I did a blues from B.B. King. You know, I did a really, you know, like a very, uh, uh, something that's very rhythmical that is from the 1950s that involves strong syncopation. It's from Badoom Boom. Which you know, you guys know this. Uh, this is a piece that's from 1956, which is a drum score that's of this time period when jazz dance got its name. Jazz music was popular, so jazz dance got its name that way. But now jazz dance is just stuck, but it's the music that's trending now. So I guess that's what I mean about you got to keep your finger on pulse that's going on now and knowing what's happening musically, trending movement wise, but you also have to keep your ideas about what has happened before. And that's the part where I seem, it feels like it's slipping. I like, I've been having that conversation over and over, especially in the past two years, but it's so incredibly important to know where things come from, especially with jazz technique. Well, all dance technique is internal, but jazz technique is extremely internal and its roots are internal and how it was born. It came from all of these feelings. And so it's always so important to be educating ourselves on that. And also a lot of commercial work and stuff you'll do for TV and film is jazz based. 
and it's qu- you have to pick it up quick and you have to know the style and you can see that you can see it's like you can't fake that style you, you know, when you're casting someone, you know, if they have jazz technique and you, and you know, if they know the roots and you know, if they don't, and it's so important, like we get in this age of like imitating things because it's easy to learn. (laughs) I'm always doing the elbows. It's easy to learn stuff online. The TikTok dance, right? (laughs) Yeah. I love that dance is having exposure and like bringing people together and bringing dance to everyone, but imitating is really dangerous if we want to have longevity. So I'm so happy that you that you brought that point up. So thank you, Sam, for sharing. Well, and it's, it's like trying to jump straight into fuetes when you don't even know how to plie. You don't know what quasi is, you know, it's, it's that imitation. And I know we were all there, you know, I was like a eight year old and I'm like, Ooh, the older kids are doing fuete turns. So I'm going to try and do that. And I would imitate it. And you know, you, you get around, but there's absolutely no merit or technique to what you're doing. And I feel like on a broader spectrum, that could be what's happening with the use of technology and exposure, visibility of dance, as an overall arching theme of dance, the imitation of, I want to do what's cool as opposed to, do you know where that came from? Do you know uh, Giordano technique of getting into the floor, of dropping your pelvis? of, and, and I think that's something that, like you said, Alex, you can instantly see dancers that do know that and are aware of it um, and dancers that are just kind of following along, trying to imitate, right? Amazing. Sam, yes. thank you seriously so much. Uh, it, I was just going to say, if you can leave us with one last one last inspirational quote or anything on the end of that topic that you want to uh, leave to our listeners. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stay with the, about the young, the, uh, you, know, you ask about the, the young dancers that are coming up now. It's something I remember that it's, it's what uh, Miguel, when you mentioned Miguel Perez, he talks about this. It was something I said to him, uh, but stay humble, stay humble don't lose sight of why you are have chosen this art form to express yourself and ask yourself, is it because I want to be famous in a world where we're TikTok famous, YouTube famous, we crave likes and praises. Is it that, or is it because this art form feeds you as a person, as an individual to express yourself? And if you cannot feel that that is the reason why you're doing this. If you can't get the feeling that I must dance because it's what keeps me whole, keeps me happy, then you shouldn't be in this business because it's going to be very, very hard if you can't go back to that. So like, yeah, be humble. Don't lose sight of why you're doing this. And it's because it's something that's a little bit deeper than becoming famous or getting that praise. And remember this is the last part that is really important, I think, for this generation, because I think this generation is kind of uh, afraid of failing. And I always have to remember that through my life, every time I grew or I learned something, it wasn't from my successes, but it was up from my failures. And from that point, I learned something that I moved forward and I respected it. And I respected that if you fall down you and you or you have an obstacle and you learn to overcome those obstacles, that's where you are going to find, you know, you're going to find that success that way. It's not from the successes. It's from the failures. So allow yourself to fail. Allow yourself to not always feel that you have arrived 
and that you are good enough to be able to be this, you know, incredible talent, but keep learning, learn from others, learn from your peers, learn from people that you're working with, working for, and learn from the ones that have come before you and have paved the way for you to do what you're doing today. The end. Sam, we seriously, a mic drop. We cannot thank you enough for like being just so genuine and just sharing your knowledge. So thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to see you. Um, We'll definitely have your, um, your socials listed in our description below. So our listeners can get a few peeks at some of your incredible works, but thank you. It's been such a pleasure to catch up with you and see your face. So hopefully we'll all be together in a dance studio again soon, but until then, thank you and please stay well. 